Welcome to the final episode of the Ken Thomas series in the Warrior Next Door podcast. In the last episode, we heard about his odyssey traveling to the China-Burma-India theater and what typical missions were like for him. In this episode, we hear all about the living conditions for him in the theater, as well as the politics behind General Stilwell's forming of a group called Merrill's Marauders. So the next uh, clip that we have is the other group that he supported. So you just heard about an OSS mission. Uh, now you're going to hear a little bit more about the push because uh, the OSS set the stage by blowing up infrastructure, logistics, support, and now um, we're, we're going to actually send forces into combat to push them out of this area to open up the Burma Road. And air support played an important role in that. Then as we go through the motion circling and passing, it was almost like a, a landing pattern. We'd make a pass, circle around, make another pass, circle around, make another pass. Now, you wonder why we made so many passes. Well, those guns were bore-sighted for 1,000 feet. So you're doing about 240 miles an hour. You've got an effective pass time of about three seconds. That's all. And in three seconds, you're probably going to squirt up out of all eight guns, probably less than 200 rounds total. So you make a lot of passes. And every so often they'd say, well, that's pretty well wiped out there. Let's look at another one. And then they'd describe another place. We'd move over to that. As when we were carrying bombs, uh, those would usually be loaded on only for specific purposes to go after a, uh, a uh, storage yard or a, uh, a building that they thought was being used for storage or an actual weapons dump that they could see through the binoculars. And all the bombs would be dropped one at a time for the very good reason that if one bomb does it, say the next one, we got another place for it. All of our uh, equipment, ammunition, gasoline, bombs, and everything else were flown over. And they, they always told us it took seven gallons of gasoline to deliver one gallon that we could burn. So seven to one was the ratio. A 500 pound bomb, or a 1,000 pound bomb, took 7,000 pounds of fuel to deliver one bomb. So we use everything quite sparingly, and for good reason. We talk about this in great detail in yeah. Edward Patterson's episode, because he was the statistical control officer in charge of supplies for the 10th Air Force, and what he said is not wrong. So, I mean, I was just going to say, I mean, if you think about what's going on here, um, we're trying to attack Japanese forces from the West. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about the Pacific Theater and how we attacked the Japanese military and, and naval, uh, you know, forces. We came at them across the ocean from the U.S., right? Well, we also attacked them. You know, obviously there was Australia to the south, but we came at them from the, from the other side of the Himalayas. And so that's why... To, to be able to have bases on the other side of the Himalayas to be able to, to attack the Japanese, all the supplies had to be flown over the hump. Yeah. And that's what he's alluding to here is just how you had to be really sparingly, you know, use this stuff because there was a lot of effort and a lot of lives lost getting all that material to you. Yeah, so to the south in the area where he's operating, it was about opening the Burma Road so we can get supplies into China to keep these Japanese troops pinned down. Yeah. Uh, in a more cost-effective way than what we're talking about here. You know, I think only the United States could have done this at the time, not because we're 
because of how much money we had because of our manufacturing capacity, the fact at the time, which we are again now, a world leading supplier of oil and gas. So, so we were uniquely positioned to be able to, to do this really incredibly inefficient way to supply our troops. Um, and it was, it was difficult to maintain. So the idea, so that's on the south side of the Himalayas. On the China side, the idea was to not only supply to keep China into the war, but to put B-29s there and bomb Japan. And after seeing how difficult it was logistically to get bombs and gasoline over the hump, it was quickly abandoned. And that's why the, jet, the bombing effort from the B-29s occurred in Tinian and Saipan and the Marianas Islands because it's easier to do that. And again, Edward Patterson, we go into great detail on that one. The question I have for you, Oscar, is this. So he talks about the different loadouts that he had, the different, you know, weapons. I mean, when you're when you're flying, I don't know how long you're up in the air, uh, you know, helping to 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 uh to support ground troops, but I mean what what's kind of a range of missions that you're up there and what sort of ordnance would you have to, to, to attack certain types of things. Like I heard something about these 100 pound bombs that were used a lot for a while. Could you comment a little bit about what that looks like today? Sure. Yeah. And the, the F-16 carries a ridiculous amount of weapons. So I'll just cover a couple of them, uh, real quick. Obviously the gun we've already talked to you, that's just a 20 millimeter Gatlin gun. We carry 500 rounds, uh, which equates to five seconds of gun. That's okay. it. It's a hundred rounds a second. Uh, additionally, on top of that, we can carry 500-pound munitions that can be both laser-guided and GPS-guided, which is pretty awesome yeah. uh, for both of those. So real precise weapons on that side. We can carry 250-pound uh, weapons that are, are very precise as well. Those are usually GPS or uh, what we would call INS, uh, inertially guided. So I uh, think kind of like gyro kind of positioning uh kind of accuracy, also very accurate. Additionally, on top of that, we can also carry rockets. So mm. the rockets uh, can be dumb, what we call dumb, which we're just going to go in and like point in the general direction and, and let that thing go. And, and, it, and they're actually fairly accurate. We have an aiming reference for the jet. So, so, so really quick, that's exactly what they did in World War II. That's a yes. carryover. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And then uh, the modern age of the rocket would be the laser-guided rocket. Mm. And those things are wicked accurate. Uh, I can't tell you exactly how accurate, mm. but they're really accurate. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're pretty good. And that's for a close air support mission. Those would be the types of weapons we would carry. So GPS and, and laser-guided 500-pound munitions. GPS-guided 250-pound uh, munitions, and then also our rockets and the gun. What an amazing capability Yeah, that you yeah, can absolutely. have one person like you flying. Or, now, did you guys, when you were doing ground support, did you still have a wingman or just one person? Always with a two-ship. Yeah, yeah, always okay. with a two-ship. Now, talking about the gas, it made me chuckle a little bit, the 7-1 gas, and I won't get too much into it, but we're kind of gas needy in the F-16. We burn a lot <laughs> of fuel and we don't carry a whole lot of it. So sometimes what would happen is we would do what's called yo-yo ops. So... I would stay on station with uh, the ground support, and then my wingman would go to the tanker, who might be 50, 100 miles away. He'd go get gas, and then he'd come back, and then I'd go. And then you just keep swapping out. That way, there's always somebody overhead. And you just explained yet another capability that we have that's sure. amazing outside of that is the aerial yeah. refueling part. Yeah, aerial refueling. Talking about the 701 gas, my second trip in Afghanistan, we didn't have any tankers based in the country. So those tankers were actually coming all the way from LUD Air Base Qatar, flying through Pakistan into Afghanistan, like 650-mile trip, just to give us gas. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, That's pretty wild, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, the more I dig into what we're able to do now as a military, the more 
the, the more I'm, I, I'm in awe of it. And this is all just the unclass stuff. Just, yeah. You know, use your imagination. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, j- j- just what we can do now, just as a matter of course, anywhere, yeah. Yeah, you know, not even a special yeah. strike package sure. with whatever other d- additional weapons that we have. Well, that's incredible. So, uh, the next clip, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the living conditions and the two bases that he would be, uh, staying in. One is Shimbian and the other one is Mitch now. What, what, the, what were the living conditions like? I think, uh, those very two, the first place at Shimbian was right in the middle of the rainforest. They whittled out a runway that was downhill. We didn't matter where the wind was, we took off downhill, we landed uphill. Wind didn't matter because there was these huge trees on both sides of the runway. It was my twin got down to where the runway was. And at that place, it rained almost every day. The summer we were there, we had 200 inches of rainfall <laughs> in that one summer. So everything was wet. We, uh, our, winter, our dress uniforms, we'd have to try to hang them outside, air out, so the, the mildew didn't set in. And with the rain going on, we couldn't always do that. But everything around us was wet and soaked and sudden. We did have, however, have uh, latrine facilities and bath facilities. I don't remember anywhere where we didn't have that. We had uh, dried eggs, dried potatoes, and dried powdered milk. But we were also blessed with a mess sergeant that understood all of those things. And he could make mashed potatoes that so helped me. I couldn't have distinguished from fresh out of the patch. And he could take that powdered milk and the powdered eggs and the scrambled eggs. I couldn't wait to have them every morning. I was on one of the few idiots that they considered dumb enough to get up for breakfast. They always looked for me. And I always looked for the eggs. Growing up on a farm, breakfast was always the main meal, you know, yeah. 6 a.m. If you didn't get that under your belt, you weren't fit for a day's work. So that was a habit I formed, and I have, to this day I still enjoy breakfast. Michinaw was uh, in the uh, prairie-like area. We had a lot of uh, green pastures around there. Now the farmers didn't use pastures, but the wild water buffalo did. There always you could always see herds of those grazing around. Now the uh, and the, the air was nice and fresh. You could hang clothing out to dry. You didn't have to hang them out to air. You could hang them out to dry. And uh, that area was really quite nice. I enjoyed it. We had good facilities there. And uh, the area was so nice that the Red Cross girls even had a station around. We could see donuts now and then and coffee. You know, like that. Wow. Not quite the European theater of operations. <laughs> Now, somewhat similar to what some of the aviators we spoke to in the Pacific experienced, yeah, especially earlier in the war. But um, I've read, and we talked about this in the Edward Patterson interview, that the morale suffered to some degree in the CBI because not only were they not getting the press coverage, not only were they not getting the resources and supplies that they felt they should get, but the living conditions that they had were far more primitive, generally speaking, than what most officers in the United States Army Air Corps had at that time in World War II, for example, whether it's the Mediterranean uh, or the European theater. Um, and if you go online and you type in the uh, 88th Fighter Squadron or the 80th Fighter Group, there's something called the Burma Banshees, and you can go into each squadron and people shared pictures and photos of of the base and and the planes and everything and the operation. And it is 
it is otherworldly. It is like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark sort of stuff. Hmm. And, and this is where they were trying to prosecute a war. Um, Oscar, you mentioned being out of Bagram, mm-hmm. and you said it was a large base, and yeah. there was a huge hullabaloo about when we left Afghanistan, sure. about what we left behind there. I mean, what was that facility like? Uh, so to be honest with you, and this is not, this is not a dig against LUD, but the living conditions were amazing. In <laughs> I'm not going to lie for being in a war zone. They were pretty good. Uh, you, you know, you, uh, as a pilot, we got our own room, which is unheard of in the military in a combat zone. Uh, you only shared the bathroom with like 12 other dudes. It was like, man, this is awesome. <laughs> you know? And, uh, the, the chow was actually pretty good. Uh, not bad. Every midnight they had chicken tenders. So that was like my favorite meal. Oh. Uh, and then uh, of course there was the dash one, they call their, it was a dash class one, class one order. And the class one order, uh, the lieutenants would take care of that and they would order all kinds of snacks. So you got pretty much unlimited, uh, Nutri-Grain bars and all kinds of good goodies is that concerned. But yeah, living conditions actually in Bagram were, were pretty good. Mm-hmm. Not bad at all. Yeah. What are they like in Cutter? Well, what, uh, you know, John probably isn't telling you about Al Udeed was he just, he went through as a transient. That's, that's very true. Uh, yeah, we were in, we were in 40 man, uh, what amounted to a pole barn, uh, where there were, you know, 40 different folks there, all different kinds, and they might be coming and going in the middle of the night. So it was complete light and sound discipline. So if you, you went to bed, you went to bed. And that was about it. So what he probably didn't get to experience was the three bars that were on Al Udeed. I believe we had a Dairy Queen. We had a Dunkin' Donuts. We had wow. a movie theater. We had a pool. Um, you could freely go on and off base. I mean, uh, you know, I am sometimes embarrassed to tell other service members <laughs> where I've been deployed for the yeah. seven months that I was there because I literally had nothing to complain about. Um, but what I will tell you is that uh, of, uh, on my seven months there, I could probably tell you the three biggest things that led to uh, the quickest drop in morale. Hmm. Um, number one, if that dining facility or those dining facilities ever went down or uh, had issues with supply, um, you could immediately feel a drop in morale mm. um, if the gyms were not working. Mm. Um, so a way for all the airmen, soldiers, sailors, Marines to be able to offload some of that pent-up energy, um, that would cause a severe drop in morale. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd hate to say living conditions, but the living conditions at al uh, once you were in the heart and shelters, very similar to like a college dorm environment. So mm. you, you shared, it was like a giant apartment building and you shared that with someone else and you had a bathroom. But I would say, uh, you know, the, the BX, right? So the base exchange, if it didn't have uh, the things that you needed as an airman, sailor, soldier, marine, you could see a, a, a sharp drop. So speaking of the BX, off, off mic, you guys were telling me about a real crucial type of pick-me-up drink that was really popular that I'd never heard of. And there was some ritualistic thing going on with the flight crews about it. Can yeah, it's, you... the, it's the official drink of war. Okay, and it okay. is because I never heard of it. Uh, yeah. Well, we say it. Okay. It's, it's probably unofficial, but the official drink of war is known as a rip-it. Uh, <laughs> R-I-P hyphen I-T. Yeah, oh. a rip-it. Uh, and rip-its are, uh, they're, they come in short cans. You can actually find them here in the States, but you can't find the short cans. Huh. You can find, I think Dollar General has the big cans, <laughs> not the same. Should you consume a big can if they originally came in a little version? No, I, I honestly think that the little ones had more. Uh, oh, more supercharged. Yeah, and it was uh, like, yeah, I don't even know how many ounces, maybe eight ounce or six ounce can. So it's the same uh, same diameter as a standard pop can, but like half the height. And anybody that's listening that's been to the Middle East 
East in either Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan knows exactly what I'm talking about. The sugar-free ones way better. <laughs> yeah, and sugar-free we would, rippets. Yeah, we, would, we would drink rippets right before we went and, and flew. So did you turn yeah. green and muscular? What happened when you when you slammed? No, one of these? I mean you just feel great. You just feel- <laughs> it's just, it's Is it awesome. just a lot of caffeine? It's, it's a it's just a complete caffeine load. Yeah, absolutely. Like twelve hour energy times yeah. four. Yep, hundred percent. Yeah, I don't remember how many milligrams of caffeine were in, but uh, <laughs> the the sugar ones tasted a bit like grenadine, in my opinion. Like grenadine, like if you were just drink grenadine straight, not very good. The sugar free ones were like lemon flavored, and they were awesome. <laughs> yeah, they were really, and they were better for you because yeah, they had no sugar, sugar right? Yeah, that's right. Of course, it's better uh, for you. Like, you. You know, whatever it is, <laughs> sucked out as many of those as you want. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We we had a guy that drank like six of them on the last deployment in one Whoa. day. And we're like, dude, you got to stop. Yeah. yeah. He's like, what's my name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get the paddles out. Yeah. Clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, I, that was, I'm kind of lost my train of thought now because that was awesome. Okay. So we were talking about the living conditions there. Um, there had a chance to do some extracurricular activities and, uh, we're just going to play a short clip on that before we go back into his missions. Cause I was kind of blown away by this, but, uh, go ahead and play clip, uh, 25 Rhino. Uh, we made uh, one interesting trip. I spoke none of the language. We had uh, a local tent boy that we used in all, all the places except Shingriang. They, we didn't have any there. And, uh, we made one other tour out of Michinaw. There was an old jade mine there. Now, we knew the mine was there, but we didn't know for sure where it was. And the reason we knew the mine was there, we'd see the Chinese girls would come pit-patting over the mountain there east of us, and they'd be carrying baskets of eggs or sometimes little pigs wrapped in a bamboo cage with the legs and snout out. You know, they'd be on this pole, on one on each shoulder, and the, as they went along, the pigs would go... <coughs> You know, because these girls set up this even pace. But the idea being, when the girls rested, they'd leave these pigs tied to this bamboo pole they put over the shoulder, and they could root and graze and eat nuts and whatever, you know, to get them through. And we learned that they were going to a jade mine about 40 miles west of us there. They'd trade the pigs for jade or the eggs or whatever. So we found out where the jade mine was and decided to make a trip to that. Well, it was at a place called uh, Mogong. And when we got over there, there was an English interpreter that said that that mine had been visited by Marco Polo when he inspected the old silk routes. That's the mystery there. And um, it hadn't changed much from Marco Polo's day. Really? <laughs> it was a slanting hole down into the ground and when we got there, we heard uh, all this grunting and going on every so often a rock, like a hammer hitting a rock. And finally they had a little old car, a little old flatbed car on two very narrow rails. They pulled out this lump of jade, which was probably uh, two feet in diameter and three feet long. Mm-hmm. They broke it off that load that was down there. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing that spoken there that I bartered for, for some jade. <laughs> and uh, my wife still has it. Oh, that's really cool. It's- yeah, so jade is highly prized by Chinese, uh, specifically in the Southeast Asia generally. 70% of jade comes from Burma, from this area, from this collection of mines. It's a beautifully translucent green gem. Sometimes it can have certain um, textures within it, and they have different varieties. And it's been mined since the 10th century by the Chinese. 
And when I did a keyword search, keyword search on this mine to learn more about it, what I'm learning is that it's almost like the blood diamond debacle thing that was going on in, in Africa where you had different groups fighting for certain access to the mine and the locals were sneaking in there and, and the mine was collapsing and killing like 60 or 70 people when it happened. And it's, it's, it's a real crazy thing, but it's highly historic. You mentioned Marco Polo was a visitor to this mine. That is probably true given how long this mine has been active. But when you guys had a chance to deploy overseas or even maybe some of the places you went in the United States, were you able to go off base and see anything, anything historic that kind of sticks with you after all this time? I think the only thing that comes to mind for me is we, we had, I had the opportunity to deliver some aircraft to the Egyptian Air Force. Um, so we were able to go see the Sphinx. Oh, yeah, that great, counts. Yeah, that counts. Yeah, absolutely. So that was that was pretty interesting. Uh, got, to, got to go do that and see see some pretty interesting things in, in Egypt. So whatever, so this is something I thought of earlier, and this is, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, because so whenever we're, you're, you're transporting aircraft over, obviously you just you get the job of just flying the aircraft the whole time over there, right? So Correct. it's just, uh, it's not like they put these planes on a big, you know, transport, you know, plane or anything like that. That's right. I mean, yeah. You have to fly them all over individually like that. Yep. How fast do you cruise at whenever you're going over long trips like that? Well, like I talked about in the close air support piece, we can't go very far without gas. So oh, we'll, we'll yeah, be yeah. with the tanker the whole time. And really, to be honest with you, the, the, the same speed that they fly is our most fuel efficient speed. You're talking about the F-16, yeah, sure, we can go Mach 2, but it's going to take afterburner. And just to give you a kind of a comparison, our cruise fuel burn is about three to 5,000 pounds per hour. Uh, when we go in full afterburner, it can be as high as 50 to 75,000 pounds. Oh, wow. So, wow. Uh, yeah, you're going to laugh at this next comment. We carry 12. Thousand—that's all we carry. Uh, so wow. you know, you're talking about like less than 15 minutes of fuel if you were to stay in max AB, sure, which we sure. wouldn't do. But, yeah, I think yeah. I did read somewhere that the range is really short, and it was designed to be kind of a quick intercept fighter. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yep. And yep, so sure. I guess the um, our logistics support and the in-flight in refueling is allowed to have longer legs than that. Yeah, absolutely. And more loiter yeah. time. So. Do you guys ever use afterburner on the turns? Because you, you yeah. talked about how they want to. He wanted to have a, a, a tight turning plane whenever they developed it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. just wondering. So you do? We wow. do. Even yeah. in a close air support uh, scenario, some some of our weapons require us to be pretty quick. And when we're when we're loitering, and uh, what I mean by loitering is if we're you know doing close air support, yeah. watching the guys on the ground, we want to conserve gas. So we'll fly at a slower airspeed, but some of our weapons require us to fly faster. So at that point, we might need to you know yeah what we call light the wick and uh, and and try to try to pick up some speed. So this concludes the portion of the podcast where we are uh, going to, we have used commentary from um, Major John Oscar Nowakowski and Technical Sergeant Nicholas Lash. Uh, they're going to have Lasher. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yes. Yep. Write that down. <laughs> I'll edit that out. Yeah. Good thing I've been calling him <laughs> Nick all this time and not something else, but it's all good. At any rate, um, we really appreciate you guys coming in. And, and sharing this, the rest of the podcast is going to focus more on him getting his points and going back home. A lot of the operational elements that we wanted you guys to comment on, you've been able to do. And I got a note from Nick saying you guys got to bust out of here soon. So um, before you guys leave, is there anything that you guys want to share about maybe a particular experience that we didn't get a chance to talk about? 
or you know about the Air National Guard? Any any sort of comments on that and how people can participate or maybe uh, understand more about what it has to offer? Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, just I can't kind of first of all, thanks thanks for the opportunity to come talk with you guys. You know, it's it's interesting to me, even fans of history that don't really understand that there's a fighter squadron in our backyard <laughs> yeah. and a wing that supports him that, that will deploy all over the world, you know, and I think that's the important thing that, and it's, uh, you know, I, I'm probably a rarity at the, at the base. Um, I would say 75% of our folks are from the state of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. which is pretty awesome. When you think about that, this, this unit that, that I work for has literally been to every continent in the world. Um, you know, we've supported operations in the Pacific. We've uh, supported operations in Europe in, in the Middle East most recently, mm-hmm. you know, basically both, uh, Northern Watch, Southern Watch, and then, and then also in Afghanistan. So it's kind of interesting and it's, it's fun for me to get out and talk to people about it. Um, so again, can't thank you guys enough for, for having the opportunity to, to sit and talk a little bit about our experience and then also kind of showcase the 138th fighter wing, because, uh, again, we've, we've been all over the world and we're right here in the backyard and they're probably Tulsa residents that have no idea it's there. Other than the cool F-16s fly over once That's in a right. while. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Like, oh, what, what are they doing? You know? And, uh, yeah. so thank you very much. Oh, no, we're, thank you. Yeah, so uh, I think some some quick parting words. I'd probably say, uh, you know, John and I being able to be here today with you guys wouldn't be possible without the support of our senior leaders uh, mm-hmm. here in Tulsa. Um, you know, this was a, a work day for us. This was a drill weekend, a Saturday, uh, generally a really busy day, mm-hmm. uh, and they allowed us to to come out here and, and do this with you guys. So uh, oh. we can't say thank you enough to them. Um, that and our and our spouses and families letting oh, yeah. us come out and do this is, a, you know, we wouldn't be able to do what we do a day in and day out without. Uh, them. Um, but really, if anyone has any interest in, in reaching out, uh, you know, in joining the Air National Guard or at least looking into it, it's zero pressure, right? We don't operate like active duty. Um, and we're, we're looking more for that white glove experience with someone, kind of how I pointed out earlier with the difference between the active duty recruiting and then the Air National Guard experience. And, uh, you know, the recruiting team that I work with in Tulsa is, is amazing from my supervisor all the way, you know, down to the youngest guy that we just hired on our recruiting staff. So, uh, if anyone wants to reach out, um, they can reach out, you know, via my cell, uh, or, you know, they can reach me on social media, you know, it's at, uh, tech Sergeant Lasher, T S G T underscore L A S H E R. Uh, and my cell, obviously nine one eight seven six zero four five six eight. Awesome. And what we'll do also is we'll put your information in if, uh, on, on our Facebook page, uh, that will, cause what we usually do is we'll post information on the Facebook page that accompanies whatever series is, is going on. So, We'll make sure we post that information out there for anybody that's that's interested or curious or just want to know what you look like, you know, stuff like that. So, Nick's a tall dude. Yeah I, yeah, I saw I saw him get out of the car and I was like, he stood up and he kept standing up and I was like, wow, yeah, big guy. I mean, for Oscar, it was the mustache that was the first thing yeah. I noticed. And he's for you, it's bald. Exactly. So, I love it. He's gonna get it. We we can't appreciate enough having you guys in here. You have added dimension to our podcast. We didn't have. It's named the Warrior Next Door. Because we believe that every veteran who serves in every capacity has an interesting story to tell. And the fact that you guys are neighbors, you guys are just down the road. You're next door. From Tulsa. You are yeah. you're the warrior next door. And in this case, you guys are still uh, in the military serving the United States at a time where we kind of need people to make sure that we keep what's going on in, in Europe from becoming something worse. or having some of our allies get... Uh, uh, get get rolled by by certain bad actors you know in the world right now. So 
we really uh, thank you for the sacrifice and everything you guys do in the military. And it's not always a sacrifice. I'm a little jealous about some of the stuff that you told me about. I'm like, that's just badass. So, hey, for those that are thinking about, you know, maybe doing a career in the military, this is a, another way to do it that you may not have heard about. And as you heard, you can still travel, do some amazing stuff that you're not going to get sitting behind a desk. So it sounds like the conditions are pretty cush in some areas, too. So yeah, it's not like it's going to be a total hardship. That's you know? right. That's so. right. That's right. Ryan, do you have any parting words before we release our guests back into no, the ether? I just want to say thanks to those guys. Nick, you're the one that reached out to us, Absolutely. and I'm really happy you did. Um, love to have you guys back sometime. Maybe oh, yeah. we could do another do one in the future. And um, just all the, the commentary you guys add and the color you add is just spectacular. And it, it, it helps Tony and I, you know, um, really, uh, you know, put out some better content with people yeah, like you. You so. made this better. All right. In this next clip, Ken's going to talk about the politics behind General Stillwell setting up a group that would be known as Merrill's Marauders. Stillwell's folks have been missionaries in uh, China. And he spoke the Chinese language fluently and understood the Chinese mind. And in disgust, they finally asked Stilwell if he'd go. He said, I'm a soldier. You tell me where to go, that's where I'll go. So he ended up with it. And he uh, tried his best. There was plenty of soldiers over there. Chiang Kai-shek had literally 14 divisions that he was supposed to have. But he was getting paid for 14 divisions. He probably had between 9 and 10 divisions. Mm -hmm. Now, the Chinese handle their payroll a little differently than we do. We used to count out each soldier. China gives the general the payroll. And he, if he can find the soldier, gave him the money. If he can't, we put him in the pocket. Wow. So his, he didn't know how many troops he had, really. But he wasn't interested in losing any of them, either. So, Stillwell could not coerce him into actually supporting what we were doing down there. Nor could he uh, coerce the British into supporting what we were doing there. So he finally came up with the idea of this volunteer, all-volunteer group, which they call, and he put him under the command of General Merrill, and that's where the name Merrill's Marauders came from. And these guys were recruited from all over. Some of them had been helped build the Alaska Alkine Highway and wherever. Just, and they just were told if you had a, a uh, opportunity to be in a very unusual group that would face probably severe battle, but probably for no longer than a few months. So he recruited Merrill Marauders, and they started from Lido with about uh, 3,000 plus men, as I recall. Now, this, this may not be exactly right. And by air, where they were going, Michinaw, 750 miles. On the ground, it was probably more like 1,800 miles. They started their journey with a lot of good old Missouri mules to carry the packs. A lot of the mules couldn't hold a footing on the wet mountain slopes, and they ended up in the bottom of the canyon. And Merrill's Marauders would send some guys down there to recover what they had to have and carry it back up on the shores and proceed down the path with it. They uh, got dysentery, they had malaria, they had everything in the world, and by the time they got to Michinaw, they had about 700 people that were still on their feet. Most of them are already dead. Some of them have been dropped off in hospitals. And Stilwell saw that the Japanese were going to be whipped if he could hold out just a few more minutes, and he was 
gravely criticized for being the route to send MDs into the hospital, and if anybody could stand on their feet and shoulder a rifle, he needed to come out there and help you. Yeah. And they did, and we won. And we landed on the old airstrip, and our early missions off the mission or airstrip was still had the problem of a Japanese gun emplacement off the far end of the runway. And so they'd take off short, circle around, drop a bomb on them, come back land and get another one. Take off <laughs> Crazy work. So what we were saying earlier is Ken with his P-47 and the squadrons of P-47s that were part of the 80th fighter group were supporting several things. One was to um, support the OSS and the OSS was collecting intel to disrupt supplies and logistics for the Japanese. And then the other was to prevent Japanese aircraft from attacking our cargo planes flying over the hump. <clears throat> Mitch no is where these Japanese planes were. Everything was focused on going into northern part of Burma and freeing up Michnaw, having us occupy that base so that we could not only open up the Burma Road, but also stop having our cargo planes harassed. So what, what they did to help the force that they sent to take Michinaw was another unconventional force. We already mentioned the OSS and how they grew to a guerrilla army and were very effective. Merrill's Marauders were kind of similar to that. They were a special group, a special detachment, a special forces. They were named after Frank Merrill, and the official name is the 5307th Composite Unit Provisional, because they knew it was temporary. I like that name better than Merrill's Marauders. <laughs> <laughs> well, so their code name was Galahad. Oh, really? Yeah, that That's was cool. their code name was Galahad. And what this unit was famous for is these big deep penetration missions behind Japanese lines, kind of like the OSS was doing with yeah. the guerrillas. But these were well-trained conventional forces and these uh, from the United States primarily. And these forces were, they're all volunteer units. And you heard um, Ken talk about in the pitch battle, the last battle, the last hard push after Merrill's marauders had marched hundreds of miles through the jungle and suffered terribly that they needed one last push and they went into these aid stations to get the walking wounded to help. But in addition to that, when they originally constituted the Marauders, the 5307th Provisional Group, it's written here that a few Pacific veteran volunteers came from stockades, <laughs> were mm -hmm. volunteering, earned them their freedom. They were sprinkled throughout the unit and called, quote, the dead end kids, unquote, after the Hollywood film series featuring juvenile delinquents. So it's like a dirty dozen. Thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so there's so many of these movies and Ryan and I, you and I were talking about this last night about POW films, like Hogan's heroes and a great escape. There's movies like the dirty dozen and the devil's brigades where they have this element of, you know, we're going to bring in these scoff laws and they're going to make their terrible soldier. They're, they're not the nicest human beings, but they make great soldiers. Yeah. When they have nothing to lose or the quote unquote dead end kids. And so, I mean, this is something out of one of these storybooks. And I think what happens, and we talked about this last night, yeah. is some of these fictional accounts end up bringing in elements that actually really happen mm -hmm. in this case. So at any rate, by the end of November 1943 until the end of January of 44, and remember, Ken would have gotten there, eh, 
you know, maybe April-ish of 1944. So they were training, right, when Ken, before he showed up. The 5307th remained at Diagar and trained intensively. Here are the sort of things that this unit was trained to do. Uh, the men receive instruction in scouting and patrolling. That sounds pretty standard. Stream crossings? Uh, okay. Weapons? Makes sense. Navigation? Okay. Demolitions? Well, that's not what most infantry units necessarily cha- uh, uh, char- uh, train in. Camouflage? Small unit attacks on entrenchments? Evacuation of wounded personnel? And the, then, the, ne- the then novel technique of supply by airdrop... This was a special special forces unit here, and yeah, in addition, I was going to say it sounds like it sounds like Green Berets or or some special forces. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- this is, goes well beyond advanced infantry training. In fact, the last thing they said special emphasis was placed on quote jungle lane unquote marksmanship, where they would put pop up and moving targets using small arms. That is high. That's like SWAT team stuff. That's like Navy SEAL stuff, and they were doing this back in forty three and forty four. Mm. And so Stilwell, who, as we mentioned in an earlier clip, was the overall commander for the China-Burma-India Theater, he appointed a brigadier general, a one-star general, Frank Merrill, to command them. And a time correspondent named James R. Shepley, he came up with the, quote, Merrill's Marauders, unquote, and the name stuck. So some time dude was there reporting on this. And, and the Merrill Marauders were actually widely reported in, an, in a theater that didn't get a lot of news. This sort of thing did. Because it was something special, it was something unique. I mean, I mean, honestly, um, I'd always heard the name Merrill's Marauders, yeah, um, but I did not know much detail about them, and I'm surprised uh, that there hasn't been more done, uh, you know, as far as like documentaries or yeah. even, you know, maybe even a few movies. Uh, have there ever been any movies made about? This group? There, there have been, but they've been uh, like black and white films that were heavily censored. They occurred after World War II. I can't give you the, yeah. like a filmography of what they yeah. were, but I remember watching components of it. But I agree with you, Ryan. It, I, I think based on what I shared here and we'll finish up with, this deserves like a, like a Spielberg-esque type yeah. treatment yeah. because what they did was amazing. So. In early 1944, so they spent a year training in, in, in country, the Marauders were organized as a light infantry assault unit with mule transports, which you heard Ken talk about, <laughs> for things like their mortars or bazookas or ammunitions or comm gear and whatnot. And the idea was that in February of 44, um, that there would be an allied offensive designed to disrupt Japanese offensive operations that were occurring concurrently. Remember, we were trying to push the Japanese out. Well, at the same time, the Japanese have been in Burma since 1942. They're trying to go into India and push us out. And as I mentioned earlier, these the, the Burmese and the Indians, there was a lot of politicians that were aligned with the Japanese. So what happened is... Um, in February, you had this force, and it began a 1,000-mile march uh, over the Pat Kai Range into the Burmese jungle behind Japanese line. A total of 2,750 marauders entered Burma. The remaining you know, 250 or so men stayed behind at headquarters. And while they're in Burma, the marauders were almost always outnumbered by the Japanese troops from the 18th Division. That was a division in that area. But the marauders, because of their training, because of their their ethos and how well they were led, uh, they always inflicted more casualties than they suffered. And they were led by these Cachin scouts that I mentioned with the OSS. 
and they would use mobility and surprise, and the marauders uh, would were able to harass supply and communication lines, shot at patrols. Uh, the Japanese were continually surprised by the heavy, accurate volume of fire when attacking marauder positions. Even when the Japanese could see their positions and attack them, they were often repulsed at great at great loss because of the training that they had. So, so what happened was when they were first deployed in far, uh, February and March, the Japanese were going to go into India in a place called Imphal, I-M-P-H-A-L, India. And that would become one of the most storied battles in British history. And that's saying a lot because the British have a long history of storied battles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and went on their Blitzkrieg, one of the things they did is they went down the Malay Peninsula into Singapore and kicked uh, the British and their allies' asses all the way down into Singapore and out. And the Japanese were able to defeat a much larger British force, and it really embarrassed them in a horrible way. It was one of the darkest days in World War II for Winston Churchill. That and uh, when uh, to Brookville. Mm. Those were the two darkest days that uh, he had to face. And so the British were kind of scarred by that. Uh, was that Corregidor? Uh, no, that wasn't Corregidor. So uh, if you go to the Malay Peninsula uh, in southeast into China, at the very tip of that peninsula is Singapore, and that's Fortress Singapore. And the, prior to the war, it was the heaviest, heavily, most heavily defended position in Southeast Asia that the British had. They had a couple hundred thousand men there. And this much, much smaller force of Japanese just cleaned their clocks, just mm. defeated them. Mm. I mean, wow. Churchill thought that they'd be able to hold out for years, and they lasted weeks. It was terribly embarrassing. Mm. And so what happened is when the Japanese went to attack Imphal, that's when the British showed their new tactics, their new weapons, their better leadership, and they soundly defeated the Japanese. And so what that allowed the raiders to do is instead of being a rescue force to go help what was happening to the British further to the northwest in India, they were free to do something else. And that's when Merrill said, we're going to go to Michinaw. We're going to go to that air base, and we're going to take it over, and we're going to stop being harassed by by the Japanese force there. And they did, and they suffered horribly. You heard Ken talk about... uh, the 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 mules that died that were carrying their packs, and when the mules died, the men had to carry the packs, and they suffered from uh, dysentery and uh, and scrub typhus. In fact, here's an, uh, a personal account from uh, one of the officers that was uh, a Merrill uh, marauder. He wrote, "By now, this is the march to Michinaw. My dysentery was so violent that I was draining blood, and I think we know where the blood was draining from. Every one of the men was sick from one cause or another." My shoulders were worn raw from the pack straps, and I left my pack behind. The boys with me weren't in much better shape, and a scout moving ahead suddenly held his rifle high in the air, and that meant that enemy was sighted. Then at last we saw them coming down the railroad track, four abreast. Our gunner gunner crouched down low over his Tommy gun and tightened down. Then the gun spoke. Down flopped a half dozen Japs, then another half dozen. The Japanese columns spewed from their marching formations into the bush. We grabbed up the gun, slid back in the jungle, sometimes staggering, sometimes running, sometimes dragging. I made it back to the camp, and I was so sick, I didn't care whether the Japs broke through or not. So sick, I didn't worry anymore about letting the colonel down. All I wanted to do was be unconscious. So this is, the, this is what was happening to men on this march. Finally in May, remember they left in February. So March, April, May, they make it to Michnow. They have a series of pitched battles. 
And they finally win. They secure the airfield. And that's when you hear Ken talk about landing his plane, loading up with bombs, going to the end of the runway, shooting the Japanese, and then coming back and doing that over and over again. It was that close. So in summary, what Ken was able to do was support um, the marauders whose legacy is this, and I'm reading directly from a common source. In slightly more than five months of combat, the marauders had advanced 750 miles through some of the harshest jungle terrain in the world, fought in five major engagements, and engaged in combat with the Japanese army on 32 separate occasions, including two conventional defensive battles, which they were not trained to do, with enemy forces for which the forces had not been intended or equipped. Battling Japanese soldier, hunger, fever, disease, they had traversed more jungle terrain on their long-range mission than any other U.S. formation in World War II. And in fact, a rare distinction, Ryan, every single member of Merrill's Marauders was decorated with a Bronze Star. Oh, wow. Really? Every single one. And at the end of the day, of the 2,700 men to enter Burma, only two were left alive who had never been hospitalized with wounds or major illness. None of the horses survived in 41 mules. And when the Japanese were run out, uh, they lost 3,800 men. Uh, 187 were captured, which is a lot. The Japanese commander left with 600 of his men. So his his entire force was wiped out as well. You know, uh, you, you look at the different theaters. You look at the European theater, the Pacific theater, which and then in the CBI, the China-Burma-India theater. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was always, you know, it was always a debate. Oh, would you rather have served in the European theater or the Pacific? Oh, I don't know. That's tough. <laughs> well, I know which one was tougher. Pacific theater sounded much more difficult just from a living condition standpoint. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, with the, 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 the islands that they're on and, and the, the jungle and the, the climate and all that stuff, this sounds equally as horrible. I mean, all the elevation that these guys had to, to cross and the rugged terrain and, and, um, and all this stuff. I had no idea it was that these guys had to go on these long slogs like this and suffer like they did. It sounded like the Bataan Death March. And, and it's interesting. It's a self-imposed yeah. Bataan Death March offensive operation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, one of the little tidbits— it's extraordinary. It is extraordinary what these men were able to do. And our volunteer force, subjected to those conditions, all but two were diseased or wounded or died. All but two. And what out of out of twenty seven hundred twenty seven hundred fifty, I can't think of another unit that suffered as much as that. Mm-hmm. It was just absolutely amazing. So, um, as we move to our next clip, we wanted to kind of talk a little bit more again about the impact that Ken had on the war, including supporting these marauders. So, once uh, this next clip is going to talk a little bit more. Uh, about uh, the advance and what happened after uh, the marauders uh, captured uh, Michnow. So of course, after we occupied Michnow, we had to push them farther and farther. Bamo was a uh, area that was fought for very diligently. I had some uh, several missions in that area, and the Maryland runners we actually patrolled over their heads as they were going down through the mountain because the Japanese were famous for leaving back some expendables just to shoot people as they went by, you know. And they didn't. They leave there with nothing but a gun and a pocket full of ammo. They could kill rats and eat locusts and whatever they could find to eat. But when these marauders go by, shoot a few of them. Wow. So we'd patrol over their heads, and if that happened, we'd, they'd 
zero us in and we take them out of the trees sometimes. Mm. Yeah, a very powerful force multiplier. We just went through and elucidated what the Merrill Marauders had to go through in having this air support. And the air would also do supply drops. Now, nothing's perfect. The air support wasn't always there when he needed it. The air drops weren't always there when, uh, uh, you know, when, when they needed food or, or, could, or they, could, they could get it. But the bottom line is it was a very significant force multiplier. Um. This is this occurred towards the end of the war, quite frankly. This would be the last major offensive operation by the Allies or the Japanese in this area before the atom bombs were dropped. And this next clip is going to talk about what he was doing when that occurred. About May of '45, uh, the British patted us on the back and said, "Hey, you've been great, and but we don't we we have to have you anymore." And I thought, "Well, fine, we'll go home." Didn't. We went to an old B-29 base at Dubcundia, India, which is about 90 miles west of Calcutta. And we got over there, there was a couple of bomb groups, and a, the old 33rd group, the fighter group was over there with their fighters. They'd gone to P-38s. And we were being formed into something called the Far East Air Force. But what? The war is over. What's this for? Well, we still haven't got Japan. We were bombing the heck out of them with B-29s and Zendries, killing them by the hundreds of thousands each and every night, but they weren't convinced that we were going to win. Hmm. So we were organizing that group for the sole purpose of supporting a land invasion of all five islands, one at a time. And I had already heard what had happened in Okinawa. They had occupied that, you know, and I knew that the Japanese mothers had thrown their kids over the cliff and uh, didn't follow them with the last leap. And I thought, good Lord, five Japanese islands. I wonder if the Japanese race will really survive or will they all commit suicide? Or our race. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not only the Japanese, but we've, you know, we've, we've covered, you know, in the Harvey Hunt series, uh, you know, the kind of uh, casualties that, that we were expecting to incur with a, 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 an invasion of the Japanese mainland. And uh, um, uh, that would have been, uh, you know, a, a different level. It, it would have been like war front, warfare on the Eastern Front uh, in Russia with Germany. It would have been millions of people on both sides that have died. Mm -hmm. It would have been extremely violent. The civilian casualties would have been... Uh, indescribable. The misery would have been indescribable. The starvation, indescribable. The disease. It would have been the worst chapter of World War II, which had a bunch of really, really shitty chapters. And and given the fact that at this point in the war, the uh, you know the American public was very war weary. Um, you know, if you've ever seen uh, Flags of Our Fathers or read the book. That's covered very well in there. They talk about how at that point in the war, whenever Iwo Jima was invaded, they were having a real hard time raising money with war bond tours, you know, and those war bonds were being used to help subsidize the war effort. You know, it was the money to pay for this stuff, so we didn't have to put it all on a credit card, you know, and um, uh, so it, it would have been, uh, you know, it's possible that you know it would have been uh, a potentially, uh, you know, the sort of thing that could have ended up with the U.S., I would dare say not winning, but it would it could have 
really maybe end up as a stalemate or something. I don't know. I mean, well, if it's a if it's a prolonged guerrilla warfare like we see in places like Afghanistan, you know, there are no winners. There's just a bunch of tribes that yeah. eke out. They just they just stay there longer. So there's there's a lot of books that have been written on what that invasion, I think it's called Operation Downfall, it had several components to it, like Coronet was one of them. There's a lot of um, uh, history books out there that talk about what that would have looked like. But fortunately for Ken and millions of other GIs, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have to experience that. This next clip is going to uh, talk about where he was when the atomic bomb was dropped and the war ended. And uh, the 14th day of September, now mind you, we dropped the atomic bombs in August. But the 14th day of September, we still hadn't had word that the war was over, and I had a group up Polishium. We were having a blast, and I looked over, and here's a black smoke boiling out of one of those old Big 29 hangars, and I recognized black smoke as being burning rubber, and I also knew that that particular hangar was filled with brand new tires. Now, at that time, in September of 45, the British and the Asiatic Indians were shooting each other. The Indians had had all the British rule that they thought they really needed, you know, for one, one <laughs> a group of citizenry, and uh, they were actually firing on the British. And I thought, boy, oh boy, the sabotage is spilled over. They're burning our... So I called again, very frantically, in fact, and all I get was, Roger, I thought, what's the matter with those idiots, you know? And in my thinking, I turned to head in another direction, and here's another hangar boiling out yellow smoke. Winter uniforms to replace their summer uniforms. Now I know it's sabotage. I call again, Roger, come on back and land. And on the 14th day of September of 1945, I landed our group at Kenya, and they told us once we got on the ground, that the war was over. Well, that's an interesting way to find out the war ended. Well, and that, that you know, it's what's amazing to me, September 14th, um, I think we signed the surrender on the Missouri September 2nd, if I'm not mistaken. You're not. So how in the world did 12 days later it take that long to get that message? Very important message <laughs> that we've all been waiting for the entire time in the war. Yeah. Uh, that just boggles my mind. And you know, we, and we've it, heard guys talk about how they were delayed in getting the message. You know, and oh, we kept fighting for two days after <laughs> the end of the Germany, you know, the war with Germany. And I just I, that, that blows me away. Well, and not only that, but think about the cultural imprint of having served in a theater that is uh, surrounded by a bunch of angry colonists of the British Empire. And when you come in, and you're when you see the 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 uh, Basically, the the area where they kept the new tires and the uniforms on fire, his first thought isn't, well, the war's over. They're just burning the excess supplies, which is what they were doing. He's thinking revolution is on. <laughs> so what does that tell you about, about the things he was hearing when he was over there yeah. about the level of... Um, Oh, what's the word I want to use? I don't want to see hate, but maybe there is a hatred between some of the colonists yeah. and, and, and the British in, in India. And in fact, we're not going to cover this because it's not part of this particular podcast, but it was just a few years after World War II that India would end up being uh, an independent state. The Brits could no longer, they were not the empire. They couldn't hold on to that anymore. So I get the screwdriver out. I want to recover that eight-day clock out of my personal airplane for a souvenir, you know. But I just parked it two hours before, 
but by the time I get out there, there's a tall soldier with a turban and a shroud. He must have stood six and a half feet tall, and he was carrying an old British Enfield that was nearly as tall as he was, I believe with that three-foot bayonet on the end a little taller than he was. And I get as close to that airplane as I am to you. Huh? Here's the point of this bayonet about this close to my chest. Well, you know, you halt. <laughs> and that turned out to be the only word he knew in English was halt. I tried to reason with him that I wanted to recover that eight-day clock. The bayonet didn't move. <laughs> so I, I finally moved. And two days later, I watched the Corps of Engineers crush that plane with bulldozers at each end of the wings and to the tail well, so much for him bringing back like any mementos or war booty from the war <laughs> when you've got an Indian soldier with a bayonet and who knows what kind of gun it was when it was as tall as this dude was. But, <laughs> but what, what Ken would bring back and what we will make available on our Facebook page is some real awesome gun camera footage. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. So he, Very cool. What he did when he left the theater... It, it, what, what I learned from talking to him is that the gun camera footage had a certain amount of tape on it, and they could evaluate it. And then when they were done, they would just put it back in the film, and you would overwrite it. So yeah. they, they didn't archive the tape unless there's something special that happened, like the atomic bomb drop, you know, or a bridge being bombed. So he had uh, some tape left over from his last three or four strafing missions uh, for the Merrill Marauders available, and we're going to show it, and you're going to see... Uh, you're going to see a company in planes in his squadron. You're going to see him in the jungle canopy. You're going to see the 50 cal machine gun fire with the tracers going in there. And you're going to see Japanese shooting back. Oh, wow. Yeah, Very cool. Tracer fire back. So, so at any rate, he tried to get um, some equipment from his uh, plane as a memento of the war. And he couldn't get that, but he does have that. And we'll share it with everybody. And now it's time for him to go home. They told us it would take us 30 to 32 days to get across the Atlantic at home. Now, for some reason, instead of coming across the Pacific, we went back around the Indian Ocean and refueled in Ceylon because we couldn't get out of the Hooghly with full load of fuel. And then up through the Suez Canal and Mediterranean Straits and Gibraltar and back to New York. Well, that old ship, storms and all, had this constant shiver. Constant shiver. I could tell he was going full bore. We had a storm in the North Atlantic, which was really, really miserable. Everybody on board got seasick, and the old captain, the next morning when the storm was over and the sun was out, he said, if any of you guys got seasick, don't feel bad. He said, I've been making this route for 17 years now, and that was the worst storm I've ever seen. So we felt quite a bit better. And that constant shiver of that rudder got us home in 27 days. <laughs> and I walked into my house in Iowa with my family Thanksgiving morning about 9 o'clock. Oh, man. Thanksgiving morning. Talk about timing it. Appropriate. That's like Norman Rockwell stuff there, right? <laughs> you think he was able to eat a lot of turkey that day? Oh, I think he was, yeah. <laughs> or his stomach was so shriveled up from eating sea rations. And rice his, balls. And rice balls. <laughs> he might not have been able to eat a whole lot. <laughs> So in our last clip, what we like to ask veterans uh, of any war who experience anything anywhere is how the war affected them. You know, what, what sort of uh, changes may have occurred 
to them because of their experiences in the war. So this next clip speaks to that. Probably the greatest thing was that what coordination and cooperation could do. Soldiers on the ground, tired, unarmed, not sufficiently armed, planes in the air, overarmed, <laughs> to do the work they had to have done. Yeah. It, it, it's marvelous training. And then in my last year in St. Louis, I, uh, I probably learned more from that than anything else. I, I had no, absolutely no aversion to the colored people in any way. I hadn't known any, and to this day I don't have, because some of those guys are the finest people you'll ever meet anywhere. Yeah, so the, the troops he's speaking of is after the war, he spent a stint in the Navy Reserve. And before the U.S. military was desegregated, that wouldn't occur until 1948, um, there was a, um, a group um, of black aviators that were being integrated, so to speak, into various units in the post-war military. And there were some issues with certain... Well, there was a lot of issues with racism in the United States at yeah. that time. And um, Ken didn't have any issues with that. And not only did he not have issues with that, but he figured out uh, a way to... Um, basically, his method for integrating these black aviators into the Air Force was really simple. Let them do their job. Empower them. Give them the responsibility. Make them the leaders. Take all the white non-coms that were barking orders at them and degrading them and make them go away. Mm-hmm. And, and give them the authority they needed to do what they wanted to do. And it turns out that um, uh, a year after he took over this unit, uh, they became one of the most proficient units in post-war uh, uh, military in the, in the aviation, the U.S. Army Air Corps, and he got awarded for that. He has a citation in his office. And then the other thing you heard him say is how that's, that's great. It is great cool. Leadership. It is great leadership. And he got, he, like I said, a colonel gave him uh, the award for that. And another thing that happened, which is really cool, is he talks about you know one of the things was watching the cooperation, the coordination, and people working together towards a common cause. We heard Ed Patterson, who was in the CBI, say the same thing when we asked him the same question: How did the war affect you? He said it was awesome being able to work with people that were motivated and intelligent and capable, and we could sit around and shoot the bull and solve problems together. And so I think that the U.S. military during the war, when you're trying to bring together 14, 15, 16 million soldiers, the fact that they could take all these people from different areas and different countries and different ideologies and then have people come home and think that was awesome. They actually, the military found out a secret sauce to work these different human beings from different cultures together to solve problems. And they did in an environment that's very tough in, in, in a theater that, that didn't get a lot of press. Yeah. yeah. So the bottom line is, is this wraps up. This is the last uh, clip that we have for Ken Thomas. We hope you enjoyed this. Yeah. I mean, this was a tour de force today. We yeah. had, you know, uh, obviously a very compelling story, but we had a couple of uh, experts here with us that active duty military to fill in all the gaps and everything. So, uh, big thanks uh, to those guys, to Nick Lasher, Sergeant Lasher, and Major Nowakowski. Um, what was what's his call sign again? It's Oscar. Oscar. Yeah, Oscar. That's right. So, um, 
Yeah, well, Tony, good job on this. Man, you took the lead on it, and you knocked out the park like you always do. It's fantastic stuff. Well, um, and, and we didn't, we wouldn't have done this if you hadn't made the connections and connected the dots and say, hey, let's bring these guys in and, and, and have them you know, pick apart and, and be subject matter experts <laughs> for this. So, so as always, man, you're an yeah. awesome partner. I love working with you on this stuff. This is a great project, and we hope the audience thinks it's a great project too. Hopefully yeah. our passion for this uh, comes out in the podcast. And if it does and you like it, for the love of all things holy, tell your friends. Uh, go to a podcast uh, uh, site, whether it's Apple or whatever, and subscribe. You hear people say that, but so much of our future success depends on growing our audience, and that's the only way we can know yeah. that it's growing. One thing I want to say in closing, um, you know, uh, with respect to this being, well, okay, it's Oklahoma Air National Guard. Obviously, there's a, you know, Idaho National Air National Guard. There's the yeah. California Air National Guard. This there's you know in in your country that you live in. For all of you international listeners out there, and we know there are a lot of you. Yeah. Um, take what these guys are saying and what they've said about their experiences, and consider that for yourself potentially. If this is something that fits right in your your career, um, you know you may be a guy being interviewed at some point by some knuckleheads like us. <laughs> so. Um, Anyway, all right. Well, in closing, thanks for joining us. My name is Ryan Fairfield. And I'm Tony Lupo. And thanks again for the Warrior Next Door, for all you Warrior Next Door listeners. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear, please like us at the Warrior Next Door podcast Facebook page. All of our interviews are archived at the Veterans History Project Library of Congress and also with our partner at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.